0: You're listening to Behind the Note Podcast, brought to you by a musician for musicians. Here, you will get advice toward a successful music career. This show is made to educate,
1: inspire, motivate, and empower. Now, here is your host, Chris Davis. Thank you for pressing play. This is episode number 13, and we have another great show for you today. But before we get to the content, I'm going to continue to ask for your support because we're at the beginning of the development for Behind the Note podcast, and your support is really needed, especially right now. So please, go to BehindTheNote.com on your computer and sign up for the email list. If you do that, you'll get a free MP3 that I created just for you. It's called Three Keys to a Successful Music Career, and I put that together based on the people that I've spoken to based on the interviews that I've already had with some people. So you get some real, valuable, solid advice, and it's not just me giving you my opinion, but it's a collaboration of ideas and concepts of things that have worked for other people. So please go ahead to BehindTheNote.com from your computer. Sign up for the email list. I send out something once per week. And in, in an effort to help you toward your journey on a successful music career. Also, before I forget, right now, that offer is only set up if you use your computer or your tablet. It does not work on smartphones right now. And also, you have to sign up through the home page. I have something set up. Uh, through the homepage right now now if you if you already uh, signed up in the past and you did not receive that mp3 and you would like it just send me an email and i'll get that right to you thank you so much guys and now it's time for today's content i met today's guest on a job in chicago i get the privilege of working with many great musicians and today's guest is no exception I really enjoyed how he made me feel at home, even though I was new to his group, and I really loved the camaraderie of the band members. Now, if you know anything about the music scene in Chicago, you know that one thing that we're known for are our wedding bands and our corporate bands. And that was the kind of job I was doing with today's guest, but it was really a different situation it was really unique and i i really couldn't put my finger on why it was different and so i wanted to invite him on the show talk to him and see what's going on why are things so different if you want to know something really cool about our guest check out a film on youtube called stony island how music brings us all together and it'll tell you More about him because you're not going to really get into a lot of the details that the film gets into. But it is my pleasure to introduce to you today our guest, Mr. Richie Davis of the Chicago Cats. Hi, Richie. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today.
0: Great to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me.
1: I want to tell everybody there is a movie about Richie called Stony Island how music brings us all together. And if you want to know more about Richie, I highly recommend that you check that out because it's really, really interesting. But Richie, will you just tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Well, I grew up on the southeast side. I have an older brother and sister, and um, I got into music at an early age. My brother played guitar, and he he turned me on to, you know, I remember, to the Beatles, and then he came back from... Uh, from Europe with um, Are You Experience, the first Hendrix album, and I, I got totally turned on to that. And I was always into anything guitar, and I started playing. I, I could play a little bit, and then I remember a kid brought a a silver tone guitar from Sears after he got for Christmas in sixth grade, and I was able to play one riff on it, and I got a lot of the class's attention. I I liked that, so I I sort of got addicted to. Uh, you know, being that guy. And so I, I worked really hard in, in, in my neighborhood. I uh, started bands and, and jammed all the time. And then I wound up, um, went to college for one semester at Champaign in 1975 and came back. And my brother, who's 11 years older, had graduated from Champaign as a communications major and is decided to get into film. And he had been working as a cinematographer uh, doing a lot of the Black movies uh, the slams uh three the hard way cool breeze that kind of stuff for Gene Corman and decided he wanted to direct and he had an idea to make a movie that was loosely based on my experience, which was being the last white kid on the block uh, on the southeast side and if you watch the, if you go to youtube and and I won't ex- expand on that too much you just go to the making of stony Island on youtube it it just hang with it and you'll you'll get the whole the whole thing. But suffice it to say um i it took longer than he expected to f- raise the money to make stony Island, and in that time, I pretty much immersed myself full time as being a musician. I started taking some guitar lessons and 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 getting more serious about it and Then when the filming was over, you know during the the filming of the movie because it is a music movie, I was exposed to uh, professional musicians who had already um made it, you know, guys like Phil Upchurch and Gene Barge and Larry Ball and Donnie Hagen and Tennyson Stevens. And that was, had a big impact on me. And those guys were very supportive of me trying to, you know, find my own path as a musician. And after Stony Island, I moved to LA and I took private lessons and went to Dick Grove Music Workshops, which was a sort of a jazz music school uh, for about 18 months and then I moved back to Chicago and I started playing in bands. And uh, I was in a band called Third Rail. And we uh, had to change our name to Max Tracks, X, if you want to Google it up. Um, after we got a record deal and found out someone had the the, uh, the rights to the name third rail but um that was a really good experience that was a band that was uh started out as a cover band but wound up doing two albums of completely original material and we played to full nightclubs four or five nights a week um in the years of like 79 through 83 um and it was that was a great experience to be able to write songs work them out at rehearsal, and then go try them out in front of a full house at night. That was a great experience. And after that band uh, broke up, I I had met, uh, because they were in uh, Big Twist and the Mellow Fellows and Heavy Manners, the guys who are now my partners in the Chicago Cats. So Tony Brown and Wayne Stewart and Mark Olson were in Big Twist and the Mellow Fellows, which uh, was... Uh, A traditional R&B review and we used to play a lot of the same festivals so we had sort of a mutual admiration society and I was aware that those guys were already doing commercials they were playing on radio and TV commercials Um, and Kevin Smith was who's the Cats keyboard player was in Heavy Manners which was a a very popular ska band at the same time and and so we all kind of knew each other and when I Uh, it was obvious that those guys were doing commercials. They pulled me in and I started doing commercials and I, and we all were doing pretty well, Uh, you know, radio and TV commercials at that time. So I'm talking like 85, 86. And that's when we decided to put the cats together because we missed playing, you know, clubs and festivals. I mean, it was great that we were paying some bills now because we were doing, you know, the, the money was good. It was union work. But we missed the fun of playing in front of people and why we became musicians in the first place. And we liked playing with each other. So we put together the Cats sort of based on the, the David Letterman band, which was a new band then. Uh, and it was sort of a uh, our generation that we could relate to a little more than like the Doc Severance band severance and band that was on the tonight show that was the traditional 18 piece big band even though we i played in the university of illinois big band and mark our trumpet player played with buddy rich and comes through the through the niu uh jazz program but this was a little bit more relatable and so we put the cats together just to be a cover band just to have fun and you know we were doing a lot of jingles and in the cats now is is we're going into our 28th year of being together and around the mid-90s the jingle business started to wane in Chicago for a variety of reasons um but at this at that same time the cats started becoming more popular for things like weddings and corporate parties and and the like and so we started to you know, turn our focus to making the cats a viable, successful business.
1: Okay. Let's, I'm sorry, Richie, let's pause right there for a second. Cause sure. you're, you're telling us a lot of valuable information, Richie. So it sounds like Max Trax had a pretty big influence on your career. Is that accurate?
0: Yeah. Max Trax was, uh, you know, a band of guys who were together 24 seven, who were trying to quote unquote, make it in the record business. And, uh, and write original music so it was that was everything you could want and the, all the musicians were great and um, we had a, we were a really big fish in a little pond here in Chicago we had a, a, a good following we weren't making any money but we would play to packed houses and nightclubs and f- do festivals and stuff we had and it was just a great experience if I had it to do all over again I would want to do that again
1: it sounds like it was great because for one you got to perform four to five times a week. And then you also said that you would write original music and then turn around and play it for a live audience. So you get that immediate feedback to know what's working and what's not working.
0: Right. As a matter of fact, people after a while were coming out to hear the original. I mean, some of our songs were never made it nationally, but for our little, you know, following, they were, you know, they knew all the lyrics and they knew all the songs, so it was it was really uh, very gratifying as a you know a young twenty something to be able to have that experience.
1: And did I understand you correctly that many of those musicians in the band Max tracks were also studio musicians?
0: No, uh, it was the the guys who were studio musicians were uh, the guys who were. Uh, in some of the other bands that were on the same circuit so that was uh tony brown and wayne stewart and mark olson and, and kevin smith were already doing stuff uh in, in the advertising in the commercials um and th- those guys were in bands that i had mentioned earlier like a uh, big twist and the mellow fellows and uh heavy manners
1: so how did you get to come to know them is it just from playing on the scene
0: yeah, because we used to do you know we used to do festivals where there, we, we had the same booking agent, um, Ronnie Kaplan, who works for Monterey Peninsula now, but worked for I even forgot what they were called back then. Uh, the, the, that booked a lot of uh, local bands, and he used to book them for clubs and festivals and a lot of colleges. And we would be on the same bill quite often, or we would be at say for, on the same stage. At there used to be in Chicago, in the eighties. A thing called Chicago Fest, which is sort of like Taste of Chicago. It, it was modeled after Summer 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 Dance or No, Summer Fest in Milwaukee, uh, where there would be, um, it was at Navy Pier, and they would have a main stage where they'd have big name acts that could accommodate you know twenty thousand plus people, and then there would be a jazz stage, a blues stage, a country stage, and a rock stage that would have uh, bands on from eleven a.m. till. I think 11 p.m. and this would go on for like ten days, and we would be always on like you know the blues st- f- stage or the you know they didn't have an R&B stage so we wound up on the blues stage and and those guys would be on there too and so we would do our set you know and, and they would be watching us and then we'd wait and watch their set or vice versa and and we knew that they were uh, doing some sessions too because there were there were a few guys in Max Tracks who were doing some some sessions but not the that those guys were and so that's kind of how the name cats came to be was because you know in in music if you're doing the sessions you're sort of higher on the food chain so to speak uh because you're a studio cat and so uh our percussionist in max tracks marvin who was doing some sessions himself anytime we would bump into those guys would go the cats, the cats, you know, because they were doing sessions (laughs) and we weren't. And so that's kind of how the Chicago Cats got their name.
1: Okay, I see now starting to make a little more sense. So tell us about how the Chicago Cats actually came to be an organization.
0: Well, you know, early on, we were doing gigs just for the fun of it. It was just diverse. We weren't trying to make a living. But well, one of the things I did tell all the, the guys in the Cats early on was that I didn't want the Cats to be a band that was going to write original music and try to, quote unquote, make it in the record business. Because X-Tracks took too much out of me toward the end. You know, we had some big investors. We, we burnt up, you know, like almost 300 hours in Studio A of Universal, which was as good as any studio in the world. It was on Walton. It was a a fantastic studio with, you know, uh, a lot of investors backing us. And what I saw happen with my bandmates was them visualizing the band being successful, and as such, they started to... uh, there started to be a lot of infighting over who wrote what percentage of what song because they were visualizing extrapolating that it was going to be a a mega multi-dollar million dollar hit and things became very personal and very very high drama and i just was turned off by the whole experience at that point so when uh the the guys who were to become the cats started talking about you know let's put this band together i was like my only rule that if you want me to stay involved, is it, it stays a cover band. We don't try to make it or get a record deal or write or, or do original music. And we've kept to that. And guys have have fought me on that throughout the years. But I think that's the reason we've been together for 28 years, because when you're doing original music, is as great an experience as that is, when you're doing it collectively, you know, if there's someone who's got a critique of, someone else's thing that they wrote is very personal, you know, it's like being married it's like, you know, there's certain things you don't tell your wife that you think that she should change about herself because it'll be interpreted there's no way to interpret it right, you have to be very diplomatic and especially guys with each other there's not a lot of diplomacy at all so, you know, people took things very personally, I don't like the bridge well, I wrote the bridge, well, you know you know how that goes, so (laughs) <laughs> so I just didn't want to go down that path anymore. It just was too much drama for me. I just wanted to have fun and play. And so that's the Cats is sort of, that was always our early mission statement, just to sort of, you know, to have a good time and, and play great covers of, of what now has become classic music, the, you know, old school 60s, 70s, R&B, soul, and funk. And of course we do contemporary stuff. We can talk about how we approach that too later on. But... um That's really the essence of what the cats are.
1: When and why did you decide to get into the business of performing weddings?
0: We didn't make a conscious decision. When we put the uh the cats together, it was really at the point where we were doing quite well uh in the studios and the cats was really more of just a social club, an outlet for us to, you know, still play in front of a live crowd and really no more or less than that. And, you know, people who would come see us, the the hipper people, would go, hey, that might be cool at my wedding. And so a few different people tried us, and it really was just word of mouth. We never put this band together like a lot of bands and say, you know, there's a, there's a real market up there to make a living as a musician doing weddings, as, as everyone in Chicago certainly knows. Um, and they put a band together specifically for that reason. This was not the case with the Cats. The Cats just happened to be... And people uh, asked us to play their wedding. So we did, you know. And then we just sort of learned as we became more and more in demand for weddings what some of the protocols and some of the business, uh, you know, acumen we needed to to gain uh, was. And it sort of just was a very uh, slow evolution for us sort of becoming this this wedding band that's probably accounts for i would ha- i never have done true analytics but i if i had to say probably at least 75% of our income is is upscale weddings.
1: And what other kind of work do does the band do besides weddings?
0: Everything. We still do clubs because you know part of the way we sell the cats is to say that when you hire the cats it's not a quote-unquote wedding band. And it's not to disparage the other bands, because a lot of these other bands are really great and have great talent in them. Um, but it's to say that we keep our ourselves true to who we were when we started. And that was sort of modeled after being a 70s nightclub band, which we were all in 70s nightclubs band nightclub bands before – we were in the Cats. I mean, uh, Third Rail started out as, we, we, they used to be called Top 40 bands. And the Top 40 referring to the Billboard charts. And you would play whatever was current. And I was in a band called Riff Raff. And I know Tony and Wayne were in a lot of different bands. Um, and those bands, most of the guys were not, didn't have any formal training. So there was no charts. Uh, it, you, would, you would learn by ear, whatever the song was, and you'd rehearse and you go out and play in front of Live crowd in a nightclub that was dancing to your music, and there's a certain education you get by doing that. That's a different education. It doesn't make it better or worse per se than going to the University of you know fill in the blank and being a music major. Uh, obviously, there you're going to get your reading together and your chart and being able in your theory and all that stuff, which is definitely valuable. But um, the bands that did well in the top forty circuit, a lot of them were just really good street players with good ears and, a good, and good groove, you know. And because if you didn't, you weren't going to get your your gig back the next week at, at whatever nightclub it was. So there's a certain education, a street education, so to speak, that you get from being in a top forty band in the seventies that that you really can't get anywhere now. Uh, and we're pr- pretty much the last generation who would experience that. So that that's kind of what makes the Cats unique. Even though we may be playing the same material as a lot of other bands, we're the last generation that played it when it was current in nightclubs in the 70s. And so it gives us a little bit more of authenticity and, and credibility. And our approach is different because the other bands, from what I can tell, are either reading arrangements and they have to stay on script or they're now with, you know, technology uh playing along with a a dj who's on stage to a track or to sequences that 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 you know they're playing to a click and i'm sure i'm sure the clients are very happy and it still is a fun gig and stuff but the thing about the cats that also makes us unique and we do it constantly as a matter of fact it's sort of the goal when things are going really right we improvise on the arrangements and on the sequence of tunes, we never really know what's going to happen. And we have some stuff that has evolved over years and we kind of have a a pretty set. But if someone feels something in the band and goes there, if everyone's feeling it, the whole band will just go there. Or if there's some stimulus that could come from someone in the crowd or the singer sees something and we break it down and we go somewhere else, you know, it's always exciting and, and on the edge that way. And that's, that's kind of, you know, what makes the cats special. And and for people who want that kind of energy at their at their wedding or private parties, that's what, what we what we bring. But I know you asked me what other kind of gigs we do. So so we do stuff like uh, you know, galas, like I mean, my, like we do like the kidney foundation or different people like like live auctions with it, fundraisers, that kind of stuff. We do um we still do nightclubs. And we still do festivals, and there, there's a uh, an alter ego that we had that we play a lot of corporate sales meetings. Not as much as we used to, but but you know we've been a lot of really uh, great locales. We've done all the normal domestic like convention centers. You name it, the city that's got a convention center, we've done it. But we've also done some of the things where we've been to Atlantis and the Bahamas twice. We've been to Cabo. We've been to um, oh, we've been to Maui twice. That kind of stuff, which is which is really uh, a nice gig if you can get it. So that's the other kind of things that that the cats uh, do.
1: So how do you advertise to get the word out about your band?
0: Well, we we just have a good website. So that if people are putting in keywords that they're looking for something, uh, hopefully we pop up, and then we can, as they say, convert. The people uh, on the website because it's loaded with good videos and good testimonials and, and it sells the band well. And I spend a lot of time trying to keep that website effective. Um, and then a lot of it is just word of mouth from brides and grooms or people who have seen us at weddings and 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 take our card at the time, it, knowing that if someone they know or if they are going to need a band for a private party or whatever that that we would be the band to call and then we have a good relationship with numerous uh either talent booking agents or a lot of times different vendors who are in the same scene it could be caterers it could be wedding planners it could be photographers videographers A lot of those guys like us and they'll recommend us or they'll get a client and the client say, who can you tell me about a band? You know, and and a lot of those guys recommend us. So those are the different ways we're able sort of to advertise, so to speak. And the other way we advertise is like, you know, we'll play a little club that will pay us peanuts and it will cost us money to play there. But, you know, usually if it's the right club in the right area and it's always a rocking hip crowd... When the clients come to see us there, it creates a nice atmosphere for them to 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 sort of extrapolate to say, "Wow, these they're rocking this crowd. I'm sure they'll rock my crowd. It sounds good." And so that's sort of I I consider that advertising as well because I'm
1: paying money to play there. Oh, for sure, most definitely, Richie. How do you capitalize on these performances? Because we know that if you have a performance that can but does not necessarily mean that you will have a future performance from, say, a club date. So what do you do to make sure that it works out in your favor?
0: There's really the only thing you can do is to be as prepared as possible and to give the best performance you can give and just really hope that the rest will take care of itself. If you're, I mean, the bands who have trouble are the bands who are not that good, who have to really sort of think about how they can sell themselves and the the cats don't have that problem because we're really good so we really pretty much just do our thing and and we're, we're just fortunate that it's worked out there's enough people who see it and recognize that it's it's a high quality product and they and they want it you know um I mean, you can do things like have cards there available to pass out or let people know to go to the website and, and that kind of get on the mailing list. I mean, little stuff like that. But we don't really have any kind of sophisticated, you know, plan when we're playing in front of people. It's basically the best thing you can do is be really good and that'll sell itself. I mean, it's kind of like a restaurant. I mean, you can have all the advertising in the world if the food stinks. You're going to go out of business you know, you could have very little advertising if your food is fantastic. People will tell other people and they'll go and you'll have in your business will be successful. So the bottom line for anyone trying to have a band is to be
1: good. That's great advice. And it's really straight to the point. Is there a way that you monitor to make sure that you're going to play for an audience? And what I mean is, I've been to I've attended concerts myself where there are six people in the audience and and we know that maybe the musician didn't advertise or maybe they're playing in a town that's not home for them. So they don't really have authority to draw a crowd. How do you make sure that you're performing for a lot of people?
0: Well, we don't. And we're not we're not a successful club band. We have a 700 person mailing list. And if they if 5% of them show up, it's a good night. So what's that? 35 people. When I was in Third Rail, that was a good club band. And I think, you know, I don't know what the landscape is like now for for musicians trying to fill up houses and and for the bands themselves to be a draw i mean the place that we play on a regular basis they have a built-in crowd it's going to be packed there whether we're there or somebody else is there or nobody's there because it's just on a strip on you know in wicker park i Milwaukee, where uh it's called nick's beer garden plug for nick's beer garden that and there's no cover and so it it gives the appearance to clients who see us there that we've packed the house when in fact we had nothing to do with it. I mean, there's like our 35 people will show up, but there could be 200, it's a small place, 200, 300 people there. And, you know, they walk into us and they walk, we have to go right through the dance floor even to get to the back of the club. And it gives the illusion. But if we were to to just, you know, rent a hall and try to promote it ourselves, I don't think we would get anybody, you know, a small amount. I'm like, we do our... Our every five years we'll do our anniversary party. So we've done it, Martyrs, on the 20th and the 25th, and coming up in a couple years, our 30th anniversary. And then we'll do that on a Monday night. And so, and so, you know, we'll send an email blast out to our people. And and because it's a Monday night, the word will get around, and and that'll be kind of full. Because, but but it's it's a special occasion. I don't think we could pull that off on a regular basis. What I think in terms of being a great club band is when, when I was in Max Tracks, we were in our early 20s, and Young people who didn't have families yet or obligations or were just young and could go to work without without a lot of sleep the next day would would come to see us because we were young and it became sort of a social event. And that's why it was it had a good turnout. And and of course, the music was good as well. Um, But as you know, the cats, people just, you know, don't have the time nor the energy to 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 sort of follow a band like that anymore so i would say you know if you're young i mean there's young bands I, I don't know i have no idea what the landscape or the scene is for getting people to see a band cover or otherwise locally now because most of all the parties we play are private parties and therefore the people are there for the function and we just happen to come along with the package
1: i see Let's let's move back to the wedding planners. You talked about wedding planners and videographers giving you recommendations. Tell us about your relationship with the wedding planners. how How many different wedding planners do you work with, for example?
0: We've probably worked with a dozen plus wedding planners. There's there's a few who we work with on a regular basis, and typically they'll call me. The client will. Will if they you know if they think we're the right fit for their client because we're not for everybody but if they have a client and there's there's quite a few wedding planners who like to, who've hired us for their own kids weddings or their own weddings so you know they have us on a short list of bands that they like and I'll just get a call from them are you available on such and such a date and and that's how that goes
1: would you say that relationship is key to continue working throughout the year
0: it's probably a good you know, 30%, 40% of our wedding work comes through wedding planners. Um, the rest is just word of mouth. We get calls direct from the clients. Or a lot of times, uh, a client will already know that they want us and hire a wedding planner and say, this is this is the band that we want.
1: I see. That's really good. So will you please tell us what does it take to run a business like this? For example, what what do you do on a daily basis? What are some of your daily activities?
0: Uh, Some of my daily activities are sending out proposals, negotiating contracts, doing uh, accounting for payroll, entering all that information into banking software and, and doing reports and that kind of thing. Keeping the website up to date, sending out mailing lists, blasts for our public dates arranging meetings with clients arranging walkthroughs with clients to to, once they've booked us to look at the actual physical space and try to figure out um you know logistics and and all the other considerations that come with you know having a uh, an event that's how my day usually goes oh it could be auditioning singers where i'll try to arrange with a couple of my other partners for singers to come over and and we work sort of work them out and see what you know what they've got and see if we, we want to use them. That's pretty much it. De- dealing with the, our sound guys who are fantastic Steve Coker, Robert Smith, Aaron Olson, in terms of what gear is broken and needs replacement, uh, repair, what new gear we need to buy, lights, um, all that kind of stuff. We have storage f- uh, lockers and we keep stuff in. We have to pay those bills. You know, there's a lot of bills to pay for the cast. We pay for, we advertise on Google, we pay for website hosting we pay f- uh some web design seo stuff and a lot of it is just preparing for the the next gig so for a gig may require us to learn x amount of material we may have to i ha- might have to write charts out or i might have to hire someone to write charts out i might try to organize a little rehearsal with just a couple of the guys in the band to make sure when we get to the gig that it's it's on point that kind of stuff
1: So one of the first things you said was that you have to write proposals. I'm wondering, who do you write proposals to? Is this like a cold call, for example?
0: No, it'll be a client who calls me and says, I'm interested in the cats. What's the pricing? And I'll send them the general pricing and they'll say, well, what would it cost if I have, you know, three pieces for ceremony and cocktails and then I have uh Four pieces for an hour and a half dinner and then 10 pieces for three hours non-continuous dancing. Now, what if I wanted to make that continuous or what if I wanted to make it four hours of the full band and do dancing between courses and all these different kind of permutations? So maybe I'll send them an Excel spreadsheet where they can input different uh, configurations into it to see what their price would be. for their event, so they can figure out because, you know, the pricing, it's, it's like buying a car. It can be the the base rate model or it can have all the ups and extras in it. And and it, obviously the it's going to cost uh, different money depending on what you're getting um, in terms of time and, immo- and amount of players and that kind of stuff. So th- th- that's what the proposals are.
1: Richie, you have added so much value here on this podcast today and you've given us a lot of advice. But I want to ask you one more question. What is your advice for someone that wants to pursue this as a career?
0: You have to do what's comfortable for you. Like for example, I I recognize the the pros of doing stuff where you're sort of half band and half DJ and have things on tracks. I, I, I can understand the business advantages of that for people who really dig the whole DJ thing and are younger and, and grew up with, with that kind of stuff. But for me, it just doesn't feel organic or true to who I am and where I'm from. And so therefore, we approach contemporary music by playing it like a real 70s band. And I think it, it translates well because we like doing it. And the people are actually pleasantly surprised that that we're able to cover, and even the good, even the good contemporary artists, you know, uh, hip hop or otherwise, R and B or pop. Their their studio albums might sound a certain way, but when they play live, if they if they bring a band, they'll rearrange it and make it hip and old school. And that's pretty much what we do. So you, ha- I guess, you have to do what what feels right for you. I don't know that this is even good advice, but for me. I, I can't do anything that just doesn't feel right. You know, you have to put something together. Hopefully you have good sensibilities about what, what sounds good and what feels good and what grooves for you. And to, to, to always serve the song and serve the music, you know, get great musicians and great singers who are committed. Try to treat them equitably and, and, and make them feel appreciated for their talent and their effort. And if everyone's on the same page I mean, and you're good, then you should do okay.
1: Thank you so much for that advice, Richie. How can people find you on the web?
0: We are at Chicago Cats, one word, C-A-T-Z dot com. Or if you just Google Chicago Cats, you'll, our YouTube channels will pop up and any other kind of extracurricular stuff we've done because the cats have been in, involved in a couple different Hollywood feature films and that kind of stuff. Some of that stuff will pop up as well.
1: Thanks a lot, Richie.
0: My pleasure, Chris. Thank you so much.
1: And that was our talk with Mr. Richie Davis of the Chicago Cats. Thank you for listening this far, and I hope that was helpful to you in some way. I want to point out a few things for you. I really like how Richie has not lost sight of the meaning of the band, of this particular band. He mentioned that There have been times when people have wanted him to write original music, even band members, and he said, no, this is not what this group is about. I think think all of us can learn from that. What's the purpose of your group? What's the purpose of your band? Don't forget that purpose. Stick to that purpose, and that'll make your path a little easier for you. And because Richie has not forgot the purpose of the group, even though now they do a lot of corporate performances and wedding performances they still go to the clubs because for them that's where their roots are so that's really important to remember don't forget your purpose stick to your purpose make your path a little easier well that's all for today's episode thank you for pressing play guys And just a reminder, go to BehindTheNote.com from your computer or tablet. Sign up for the email list. You'll get three keys to a successful music career for free. That's all for today. And we'll see you in episode 14. God bless your day.